Hello, and welcome back to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. I'm your host, Sam Mickey, and for this episode, I'm doing something I've done for uh, a few recent episodes lately, which is something like a remix or a clip show. And, you know, with over 40 episodes in our archive already, I thought this would be a good time to reflect on the kinds of material that's been covered, the kind of guests we've had, and look for some common themes. And for, uh, for anybody who hasn't kept up with all of our episodes, this will be a good way to see what kind of stuff we've been talking about. And I'll provide some links for you to access the full episodes if you're interested. And for people who have been keeping up with all of our episodes, I hope that the remix shines a new light on the kind of topics that we've been engaging with. So for this episode, the topic is Hinduism. We've had a few really prominent scholars of Hinduism and ecology come on the show and uh, talk about some of the work they've been publishing recently. So I have three people, each one discussing a new book that they have. So first we'll have Vijaya Nagarajan, and she'll be talking about her book, Feeding a Thousand Souls, Women, Ritual, and Ecology in India, an Exploration of the Kolam. Then we'll have David Haberman, and he'll be talking about his book, Loving Stones, Making the Impossible Possible in the Worship of Mount Govardhan. And then we'll pass it over to Christopher Key Chapel, and he'll talk about his book, Living Landscapes, Meditations on the Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. So, I hope that you find this as illuminating as I have. For now, I'll go ahead and pass it over to Vijaya. Yeah, so this is the book. Um, it's called Feeding a Thousand Souls, as you said. And as you see the picture, it's a, I don't know if you, the light is out there, that's better, I think. Um, this is a street in Tamil Nadu, in the state of Tamil Nadu, which is in southeastern India. Um, and this is a practice for the festival Pongal, uh, which literally means in Tamil to boil over, for rice to boil over. Um, and this is almost like a rice boiling over of designs beyond the threshold of the house. Um, and these are designs that are called kolam, and they're made by over 20 million women every morning. Um, and it's a, over a thousand year old ritual that we know of. Um, although there's also Vedic references to designs done for the sun god that go back to 1200 BCE. Um, but they're more from male voices and they're not specifically gendered. Um, but at least the idea of designs on the ground, on the earth, to honor the sun god, which is also part of the reason that the kolam is also done. Yeah, so it's something that it's interesting. Um, you know, Tamil Nadu is where it's done every single day, but all through India, there's many, there are many names for this ritual. Um, and so you have Rangoli in North India, you have Mugu in Andhra Pradesh, you have Alpana, it's called in Bengal, uh, in West Bengal, and you have um, Mandana in Rajasthan, and so on. So you have almost every region has its own name for these women's ritual design traditions. But Tamil Nadu, as far as I know, is the only place that it's done every morning. Um, and it's traditionally done before sunrise, although now pe with people watching Netflix and, you know, late night TV, that's harder to get people up at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> it was easier to do when you didn't have electricity yeah. because you just went to sleep at sunset and you woke up right before sunrise. Um, but, you know, one could think about almost three to 400 million Hindu women doing some kind of parallel women's ritual art form to the kolam during some parts of the calendric year. 
you know, for Diwali, for example, or Navaratri or, you know, different festivals. So it's really, this is the first book in English. Um, and who knows, like, if it's the first, because, you know, the world is a big place, but one of the first um, of really trying to understand the philosophical underpinnings of oral and visual knowledge of women, of Hindu women. So, um, and because I've been involved with the whole Hinduism and ecology field, even in a sense before its creation in the scholarly world. So, in fact, my history goes back to 1985. Mm. Um, I actually, in 1981, I went back as an undergraduate to do an internship on cow dung oh, wow. um, and biogas plants because I was right between engineering and economics at that time. And so, of course, I knew that cow dung was sacred. So, but I was really looking at the kind of energy efficiency of cow dung and in terms of biogas plants. But my real work with religion and ecology began with the Ganga. You know, I worked with a, a nonprofit organization called Swacha Ganga Campaign right. in Benares and Friends of the Ganges, it was called in San Francisco. And so I was sort of the San Francisco branch of that organization. And I did a lot of public educational events and research on alternative sewage treatments. And that's where I, to clean up the Ganga, which is of course not a one lifetime activity, but multiple lifetimes. <laughs> it took multiple lifetimes to get there. Um, but that's when I really became aware of sometimes the contradictions between uh, religion and ecology. Like we tend to think at the first level that if we, if a religious tradition frames the ecology or environment as sacred, that that automatically is enrolled in the project of environmentalism as we understand it in the Western, right. you know, epistemological discourse. But what I discovered, um, you know, as an activist um, doing this work was that, in fact, the very nature of the Ganga River as a goddess is what prevented many Hindus from realizing that the river, the concrete material, materiality of the river itself couldn't be protected by that mythic layer, that it Man. still was materially polluted, you know. Yeah, so but that was such a, such a deep contradiction to the mythic belief yeah. that it was, it was almost, um, it, it, it created a disbelief. Like uh, you know, uh, even confronting the fact of, uh, you know, of the of the intense pollution. So this is what you know, um, Mishraji, who was the founder of Sankat Manshin Foundation, you know, spoke really movingly and and really with tears about. You know, he was a Brahmin priest and he was a civil engineer, so he could see both. But he and his whole life work was to convey. That, that duality, you know, to Hindus along the river, to some success and to some failures. And so that's when I, that's when I first felt the kernel of that field. Mm -hmm. And then in 1994, there was a panel at, at uh, the American Academy of Religion. I was a grad student at Berkeley mm -hmm. in South Asian studies and anthropology and art history um, and Tamil language and literature. And I saw a panel on, uh, you know, religion and ecology. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's where I belong. Wow. That's, those are my people, yeah. you know? So I used frequent flyer tickets. I stayed with a friend, you know, I had no money as a grad student. And so I just, I was like, I've got to crash that. I've got to go to that panel, you know? And every paper was just like, I was almost in tears hearing those papers. You know, that's where I met Ann Gold. That's where I met Chris Chappell. 
That's where I met um, a whole bunch of, that's where I met Mary and Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm. And it was like, I found this whole field, just the seed of its beginning. And it was so thrilling for me as a grad student to discover and, you know, find my home in the academy in a sense. All right. Wonderful. Thanks so much to Vijaya for coming on and sharing this with us. Uh, you know, I uh, teach at the University of San Francisco, which is also uh, where Vijaya is an associate professor. She's in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies and also in the Environmental Studies program. Uh, so now I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to David Haberman, who is professor and former chair in the Department of Religious Studies at Indiana University Bloomington. And he'll tell us about his book, Loving Stones. Well, yeah, let me just jump into it. So that that what I try to do in Loving Stones is not to simply present a study of this rich culture of the worship of mountain that is the most worshiped mountain in the world, I can say. <laughs> and that's a large claim. Um, because uh, there is one day of the year, it's a very special day, where the, the there are crowds up to eight to 10 million people will come and circumambulate the mountain and worship the mountain in some form. But over the year, I don't know how many millions of people actually visit this mountain. There are most likely a larger number of people that visit sacred mountains in China, but it's a sacred space in that case. The, the mountain is not considered to be an embodied form of divinity, or in the case of Mount Govardhan, the mountain is an embodied form of divinity. So in that sense, the mountain itself is worshipped as an embodied form of Krishna in, in this case. Um, so uh, it, 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 it's, it's uh, a, a common feature, and I wanted to draw out what that world was all about as a lived uh, form of Hinduism today. But I also, as a student of religion, I'm not just interested in writing books about a particular cultural phenomenon, but I also want to engage in some big, deep, juicy religious studies questions. What are the larger issues that I can bring to bear? So that I, I even say in the book that there's two ways of reading the book. One is um, that you can read it as a study of the worship of Mount Govardhan through the eyes uh, of a scholar who is interested in, in, in or in concern with questions of, of radical cultural difference. Or you can read it as a way of um, how, how do we think about, how do we address radical cultural difference and in the example of the worship of the stones from Mount Govardhan, right? So I think the book can be read in both ways. And therefore, I, one of the two major issues that I take on in the book is radical cultural difference. And how do we think about that? Uh, and how does one, so that the, the subtitle, Making the Impossible Possible, also refers to that, that my challenge as a teacher of other cultures to primarily an American student audience or readership um, is how can I make something that is so seemingly absurd understandable? 
in in some way so that one could even perhaps have an appreciation of it and that's that's a major project that i try to take on the book on in the book with a recognition of just what you said it just doesn't that just seems like it's too much too right. much and I evoke the work of uh, the, the famous 19th century, early 20th century um, anthropologist E.B. Tyler, who, who many consider to be the, quote, father of, of cultural anthropology. Because, and, and look at the colonial um, nature of his, his project, because he talks about, uh, in his works, the progressive theory of civilization so colonialism was justified as a civilizing uh, presence in the world, helping bring so-called primitive peoples to a civilized way of being. That's really the colonial project. And he is a colonial anthropologist, and I do label him that, is very much involved in, in that project. And so for Tyler, he does an analysis of global civilizations and arranges them on a hierarchical scale from the most primitive to the most civilized. And of course, the most civilized we find in Western Europe and North America, right? And the most primitive are those outside of all that. And, and um, when Tyler turns to placing a particular society on this hierarchical scale, he, he looks to religion. And it's the religious system of a society that determines whether they're primitive or civilized. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the more pervasive, widespread sacrality is, the more primitive it is. Mm -hmm. The more narrow the scope, scope, the more civilized it is. So that the transcendent, the most transcendent view is, uh, understood to be the most civilized and the most imminent view is the most primitive. And he goes on to say that, that those societies that will see spirit only in humans are the, most, the highest societies, the highest civilizations. Those then that see spirit or soul, um, also there in animals are the next level down. The next level below that are those that see them in trees. But the bottom of the bottom of those is them in stones. So wow. that stones, so in Linnaeus's analysis of the physical world, stones, minerals, he called them, and the animals, plants, and minerals is at the bottom. So stones, even in this cultural perspective, are considered to be at the bottom of the heap. And stone worshipers are the most, most primitive. They're also <laughs> So I just want to take all that on, yeah. and I want to just question that and really see in a certain sense if it could be flipped on its head. And I don't, that's a kind of a, a judgment that I'm, I'm not so much interested in as much as opening up perspectives that really appreciate cultural difference, particularly if Everton is right, at a time when we really need to be thinking about about our conception of the more than human world. So here's where I think religious studies has something very valuable to contribute to that, in that we, we there are historically as well as present uh, different ways of conceptualizing the non-human world. And so this was a project to really get into that part of it. All right, thanks so much, David. Uh, now I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Christopher Key Chapel, the Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology and founding director of the Master of Arts program 
and Yoga Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He'll be talking to us about his book, Living Landscapes, Meditations on the Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, with the commercialization of both meditation and the trivialization of yoga as purely exercise, there was this um, shock to my system as the the yoga world changed from, um, I sort of hit the scene in the early 70s, and of course had been here since the 1890s. But when uh, I reflected as I visited the commercial centers that began to proliferate in Los Angeles in the 1990s, it was very interesting because I saw that so much that was critical and fundamental to the training that we had received was absent. So I began training yoga teachers and informing them about the centrality of ethical practice, informing them about content-filled meditation practice. And there's a group um, that had been in its infancy called the Green Yoga Association. This is uh, in the early aughts, as we call them now, focalized by Dr. Laura Cornell. And we began to launch these remarkable events and trainings and certifications that integrate yoga and ecology across all of the different yoga platforms. So during those years, we certified hundreds and hundreds of yoga studios as green yoga studios. And we trained hundreds and hundreds of yoga teachers from all over the world. And in reflecting about my own training from the 1970s that brought together the ethical and the contemplative, and in conversation with those who really saw yoga as purely a vanity undertaking, as well as hearing the theological critique that, well, India and Vedanta and yoga, they don't value the world at all. All of that just sort of congealed. And I did my doctoral studies with Thomas Berry. And Thomas Berry uh, was renowned, of course, for the earth story and the universe story and the new story. And I remember my last conversation before he passed, we were on the telephone together and he said, so what are you going to have as your next project? As only Thomas could invite in. And I said, well, I want to restore the good name of the practices of yoga that enhance human earth relations. And he said, very good. <laughs> and I had been engaged in a 20-year project, uh, actually more than 20 years, of translating from the Vedas, translating from medieval literature, translating from early modern literature, those specific instructions that talk about what we trained in at the ashram, that talk about reflection on the earth, 
thinking about water, making water the central focus of one's meditation. Air, fire, space, all of them. And in the book, what I do is layer in my personal narrative of undertaking these practices and linking them back to my childhood experiences. And the experience was as follows. Every morning for 20 minutes and every evening for 20 minutes for a full month, we were to sit with a plate of soil and thread every thought through that soil. And it was, it is a remarkable practice. And what comes up through the day is that you're walking along and you look at dirt and you say, oh yeah, I know that dirt. And I was a student at Stony Brook University on Long Island and I had this walk to get to campus and I had to walk along a truck farm and I saw the onions getting ready for harvest. And then I had to walk through a forest, across a meadow, and the earth connections were so obvious and so restorative, so calming. And then we switched and for the next month, we were to get a clear vessel of, of water and to sit with that water and to link every thought with water, whether it be, oh yeah, I'm thirsty, or oh yeah, I gotta go to the bathroom, or oh yeah, I just got out of the shower, or oh yeah, this afternoon, I'm gonna go down to Long Island Sound. And living on Long Island, you're surrounded with water. And we discovered the rivers of Long Island, the Great South Bay, Fire Island beaches, North Shore beaches, and again, those 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night, they were a really a launch pad for immersion. And I have one very fond memory of swimming in October in Long Island Sound. It's, yeah, uh, deep love for water. And then similarly, to light a flame and sit with that flame 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night and take it far and wide. So when we work with computers, we're invoking the flame. When we heat our houses, we're invoking the flame. Every time we turn on a light, we're invoking the flame. And as our teacher would say, her name, Garani Anjali Inti, she would say, nothing exists in isolation. So that energy consumption, so that cooking choices, okay, all of this requires thoughtfulness in seeing connections. And I remember, I mean, to this day, we don't own one, but I remember, again, this is the 70s. So the microwave oven was the new appliance. <laughs> and yeah, we had a little bit of suspicion of it. And then another full month on the breeze, the wind, 
the breath. And then perhaps our favorite was space. Mm -hmm. To just simply sit, gaze out the window, and the space becomes the immediate, literal space. The space becomes metaphorical and psychological space. The space becomes an examination of the very quality of the way we present ourselves to the world. So that meditation on the five elements, we were doing uh, just because we were told to do it. <laughs> And then as the years went by, I discovered, oh, all of these passages from the Vedas, all of these chapters in the Yoga Vasishta, all of these specifications of how to do these meditations found in Buddhist scripture, as well as the Garanda Samhita, again, a late medieval, early modern Hatha Yoga text. And seeing these connections does two things. Okay? Mm -hmm. In order to be effective to make systemic change, we have to come from a place of authenticity, from a place of authority, from a place of groundedness, from a place of fluidity and energy, whether hot energy or movement energy, as well as space, in order to then do what is needful out in the world. So by having that home, that place of comfort in terms of relationship with the elements, with the planet, and with the universe, we're able to discern what should be done. We're able to, to discern what can be done. And we're able to find the will and resolve to do what must be done. All right. Thanks, Chris Chappell. And thanks also to David Haberman. Thanks to Vijay Nagarajan. Uh, it's really a pleasure to hear from them individually. I also find it extra illuminating to hear them juxtaposed like this. So if you have not seen their episodes, I'll provide some links so that you can access the full episodes. And if you had, then I hope you enjoyed the remix and, uh, and found it as illuminating as I have. So I'll leave it there for now. And we'll be back next week with some more content for you. In the meantime, take care and be well.